Thanks for joining us this evening here at Warren Community Fellowship and our journey through the Bible. Um, well, in the book of uh, in Psalm 23, the last verse talks about uh, King David says, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That idea of dwelling in God's presence is what we're doing tonight, is that we're, we're entering into God's presence, coming before his throne of grace to worship him, give him honor and glory. So I invite you to stand and let's joyfully worship our God this evening. Thank you. 
God, we are grateful and we stand here in your presence amazed at your wonderful grace, the mercy that you give to us each and every day. Thank you for allowing us to be here in your presence, to worship you, to magnify your name for all that you've done for us. Now as we open your word, teach us Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1 as we continue in our journey through God's Word. Um, a couple of reminders um, that didn't get in the first set of announcements. And on the 31st, we're going to have our Harvest Fair, which is uh, our October 31st outreach for Halloween. opportunity for kids to be able to come and, and have a no-scare event. We're using the theme from VBS. And it was the Keepers of the Kingdom theme, so it's a castle theme. And 
we had a meeting last Thursday, and it was a really good meeting, and we're going to have sign-ups for all of the different things. So basically, you're signing up for a booth to do games, to help with the rock wall, the joust, some of the things that are going on, or some of the games that are there, um, or help out with snacks. Instead of having a food area, we're going to have snack tables that are all around, or craft, and we're going to have five different crafts. But I also want to encourage you to candy. Candy is a big motivator. And it's a good thing. So as you guys go shopping, grab a couple bags of candy and you can drop them off in the lobby and to be able to do that. Secondly, uh, does God answer prayer? Say yes. Good. you got good theology. God does answer prayer. Does God always answer prayer the way we want? No. But on Monday night, He did. So if you hadn't heard already, the, we, were, we were praying and, and really... Uh, seeking God's direction for the Christian school to be able to move to get their planning commission uh, approved, the plans for the school. And they all got approved unanimously Monday night, which to me is total answer prayer when you're dealing with anything with the county. So it's yay God. And then third, I'd like to take a moment and pray for one of our missionaries. Um, I'm not going to speak their name, um, but I can give the conditions that's going on. Just because I want to make sure that uh, that we that we honor their privacy with that, but it's a condition that's pretty significant. Um, they went in with a sinus infection, and it has gotten worse um, to the point that uh, the individual is in ICU um, and really struggling. So we want to pray for for them, right? So let's pray. So God, we thank you that we can lift up our missionary. We praise you. and We thank you for answer prayer for Monday. We're looking for answered prayer for this individual, for this missionary. Lord, we ask for healing. We ask for clarity of thought for the doctors. We ask for a good response to the antibiotics. And that you would be gracious to this person and, and get them better, get them whole, and give them a testimony of the power of prayer. Let them know that we're praying for them even now. God, we ask that you go before us in the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Timothy. Timothy is not the author of this. Timothy is the recipient of this letter. This is what we would call one of Paul's pastoral epistles. If you ever wonder what a church looks like that really struggles to maintain spiritual integrity, to really to really be on the uptick and, and to do well... Um, Ephesus is, is one of those churches. Paul had spent multiple years in Ephesus. He had gone there multiple times. And, and during his second missionary journey, he was establishing the church. He had, he had been there. I want to give you an idea of where Ephesus is because we talk about it. When we were actually a year ago, I think it was this week, a year ago, we, did, we visited the seven churches that are spoken of in Revelation. Ephesus is right here. This little, this little cove that is right there. Miletus is right here. And Paul would have met with the Ephesian elders in Miletus because he didn't want to go all the way back to Ephesus because he'd never get out of there because everybody loved him so much. But within this, he met with them in Miletus and warned the elders of the church of Ephesus to beware. And we'll cover that in, in a bit. But Paul wanted to address the problems that were going on in the church. So in writing the letter to the Ephesians, in which we have studied, he wanted to address those. So imagine Ephesus is this massive city. 
And it has an amphitheater, it has a huge temple, it has an agora, it has a library. It's a massive, massive city. And Paul would teach regularly in the halls there of Tyrannius and, and really poured his life into this church. He warned the Ephesian elders to be careful that, that there would be those that would raise up even from them that could corrupt the church. And they didn't listen to it. And then Paul would have to send Timothy back to this church because they had gotten off the rails again. And then we read about them, and if you're with us in our men's group on Wednesday morning studying these churches, this is one of the churches that Jesus had to address. So it's a church that, that really struggled to maintain its focus. As large as the church it was, and, and as good as it was doing, it was one that struggled, that would go off the rails. As Paul is writing to Timothy, he's writing to him to get them back on track of what church should look like, what church conduct should look like. To be able to kind of square them up and to deal with some false teachers that had infiltrated the church. Now, granted, it would have been hard to maintain a, a theological purity within there because of all of the idolatry and the false teaching that was going on within the community, within the city. And keep in mind, these are new believers that grew up in this Greco-Roman, pagan, idolatrous culture... And now they've come to faith, and it's really hard for them to shed some of, some of the things that are there. As Paul would write, he's writing to Timothy, as he, as he does in the address, my true child in the faith. Timothy was, was Paul's protege. He was the one that he really was trying to empower to be able to take over for him as he was getting older and, and in prison a lot and, and difficult. So Timothy had some, some great roles. He was young. And he was being mentored in this. And so, while Paul had sent Timothy out, he was empowering him through these letters, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And the Holy Spirit had selected Timothy, Acts chapter 16, to be able to come out and to join Paul. So he had a lot of time with Paul, but now it was time for Timothy to fly solo, to be able to, to be in this. His father was Greek, which gave him a great inroad. His, his mother, grandmother, Jewish, within this and being able to be in this place. Timothy's mission is actually stated in this first letter. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, 14 and 15, it says this. Paul says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that, and there's that hint of clause, that's a purpose, so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. The household of God, the church of Ephesus, was to be a pillar within that community. If the church loses its ability be, to, to be a pillar of truth in community, what happens to the community? The community will become corrupted or remain corrupted. We, we are called to be a pillar of truth. But if we start adopting false teachings or syncretism, where we start adding all of these things into Truth, truth no longer becomes truth within this. And we see that in our world today. So Paul was warning the Ephesians and here to live in community and live in purity in community. And, and so as a church here in this modern day, Warren Community Fellowship, we are set here for a purpose. Church is not meant to be a place for your entertainment. It is not meant to be a place for you to come 
and, and get warm fuzzies. Church is, a, is meant to be a gathering of believers that are called out of this world to empower, encourage, and strengthen one another in the teaching of the Word of God so that they would be equipped to be able to be missional in the community that we're around. And so it's imperative that we understand how to conduct ourselves even within the household of faith because if our testimony as a church is corrupted, what happens to our witness? Becomes corrupted. So much of, of what Timothy received from Paul is, is an encouragement. In chapter 1, we're going to take a look at the church and what its message is about. In chapter 2, all the way to 3.16, we're going to take a look at the church and the members and how they should function together. Um, and then in chapter, chapter 4... We're going to take a look at the ministers and, the, and how we should function, and then the ministry in five within this. So let's start out with the greetings in one and two. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Lord. So within this, we see Paul, as previously stated, he says, I'm Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He declares who he is to Timothy. Now, does he need to declare who he is to Timothy, or does Timothy know who he is? Timothy knows who he is. But as this letter is read to the different house churches and the places that are there, Paul is declaring what's called apostolic authority. In other words, when he brings these exhortations and corrections... And he reads the letter, it comes with the full weight of his apostolic authority as one who had taught there and one who founded the church and, and such things within this. And so he has this, this mission that's there. Now, we're going to take a look at this. And if you want to read on your own, you can read about Paul's mission in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 2, 2. But Paul's mission basically is share the gospel, make disciples. To be able to establish churches in the Word of God throughout Asia and within this, to speak the truth to the Gentiles. And, and he would often defend his ministry within his introduction to be able to do this. Now, if you were a person in a large city and you were being corrected, one of the questions would be, like, who are you? Who are you to, to, to call me to change my life within this? And so his mission was to deliver this message. What message? The gospel message is a very simple message. We should never make it more than, than what God designed it to be. The gospel message is a message of hope. We read in Colossians chapter 127, says this, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, what? The hope of glory. How is a life transformed? Only by the indwelling of the Spirit of God. Only by Christ in us that gives us hope. If you don't have Christ in you, there is no hope of glory. A life without Christ is, is destined to destruction. And Paul was, was desiring that people would understand this hope of glory, especially in these difficult times. And who is he to preach to? To those that are without hope. In Ephesians 2.12, as Paul had written earlier, Reminding them, remember that you were at a time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, 
Having what? Having what? No hope. No hope. And without God in this world. So what is Paul saying? My mission is to bring hope. How do I bring hope? Through Jesus. Do we live in a hopeless world today? For those that are without Christ. Yeah, they have no hope. They have no hope. Why are people doing drugs at the rate that they're doing? Why are marriages at the, at the divorce rate that they're at? Why are kids out on the streets and, and all of these things? Because they have no hope. They have no hope. And it's the church's job to bring that hope. Paul was bringing that hope to Ephesus, and he wanted the church in Ephesus to bring hope to a deeply pagan culture that had no hope. Because their gods were stone. They were idols. They were worthless. As are the gods of people today. You think about the economy. Do people have hope in the economy? Nope. Do they have hope in a successful marriage if you, without Christ? Nope. Nope, they don't. Do they have hope that they're going to have a job next week? <laughs> I hope so. Maybe. We see what's going on in our government today and the instability of, of finances and the world. And what do they need? They need Jesus to have hope. So that's Paul's mission within this. And so he's writing to Timothy, his son in the faith. As I said, he joined him in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. He was half Jew, half Gentile, which was a perfect match for Paul. Because Paul could take Timothy into synagogue, but he could also take him and minister to the Gentiles outside of the synagogue. And so he was perfectly fit for this, and he was young, and apparently strong because he was able to carry bags and do a lot of the work that needed to be done. But he was learning, and he was desirous to learn and to stay from Paul. And so within this, he joined him in his second missionary journey as he would go through Asia Minor and, and to Ephesus, and he was familiar with the people that were there. Every single person here should have a Timothy. You should. You say, well, what is a Timothy? A Timothy is a person that you are training up to replace you when you're gone. And you should be a Timothy to a Paul. In other words, you should find somebody that is coaching you in your spiritual life. That is mentoring you and encouraging you. Why? For the next generation. For the next generation. As I've been telling you guys on Sunday morning, we need to equip the next generation. Awana is amazing. We've got 75 kids that are coming and hearing the Word of God. Why? Because they're the next generation. If the Lord tarries and the church is here, they're the next generation of the church. We need to raise them up. We need to empower the youth. Pastor Mike, the youth pastor, has been going and, and making, and we've developed this plan, and he is going to be on both high school campuses and both middle school campuses every week. For these Bible clubs and, the, and working with the kids that are there. Why? Because they're the next generation. We have, uh, on Sunday nights, we have Next Gen, which is um, some younger people that I'm discipling, going through the study of experiencing God. Why? Because you need to be able to learn how to be in the presence of God. And I really desire for these 20-something, 30-somethings, and 40-somethings to be in the Word of God. Because why? Because the rest of us aren't going to be around forever. And we need, we need you to pick up the, the, the mantle 
And so Timothy was selected by God to hook up with Paul to be able to learn. And having been raised with God's word by his mother and his grandmother, which I think is super important, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 says this, Paul writes to Timothy, For I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it's in you as well. How did Timothy learn about the Lord? His grandmother and his mother. How are the kids going to learn? You are going to teach those kids. Train them up. 2 Timothy 3.15 says, And from a child... From childhood, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. I was talking with one of our children's ministry directors. We're ordering a set of Bibles. We're going to order some um, NIRVs, which are the easiest to read, so that kids have a Bible. And over the next month, we're going to check it out if it works. I'm going to encourage all the parents here to buy their kids a Bible. That they would bring their Bible and they would read their Bible. And they would study their Bible. We'll make them available so you'll be able to do that. We'll buy them by bulk. We need people to get their Bibles and read their Bibles. And to study their Bibles and know the Word of God. Timothy's mother and grandmother was raising him. Children's ministry is imperative to have within a church. I know churches today that are dying. Do you know why they're dying? There's nobody in their children's ministry and there's nobody in their youth ministry. They're called sundowning churches. Sundowning churches. We need to invest in the next generation. Paul was. And, and we know that Timothy was ordained by God. 2 Timothy 1.6 says, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Why would Paul write that to Timothy? Because ministry was hard. And Timothy was in Ephesus. And he was having a hard time. When you're in the trenches for a long period of time, you can get kind of worn out and even burned out. And so Paul says to Timothy, kindle afresh that calling. Do you feel burned out? Tired? You've got to go to God and kindle afresh. Put air to that flame and start working. I spoke with a guy earlier this week who about two months ago told me and said, Carrie, I don't think I can do children's ministry. I said, really? We had a conversation. He's doing children's ministry. And loving it. Because he kindled afresh that flame to be able to be that. What is the ministry that God's called you to? If you're not doing it, then that, that, that flame is just this little wick. Kindle it afresh. Whatever God's called you to do, do it. Because the church needs you. And Paul was writing to Timothy because the church needed a strong leader that would be there. Timothy needed to address the, it, what's called the Ephesian heresy that was going on in there. He was sent back by Paul to be able to work with these Ephesian elders and try to deal with some of the, the doctrinal problems. And so in verses 3 through 7, he said, we read this in the letter, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that, here's the purpose, to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Remember that because we're going to come back to that in a minute. 
So instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is what? Love from a pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law. And even though they do not understand either what they are saying or, or matters about which they are confident assertions. So one of the things that Paul says to Timothy is, don't tolerate teachers in the midst of Ephesus that are not sound doctrinally. If they're not teaching sound doctrine, don't tolerate them. Don't let them be there. Are there teachers today, whether it's in the media, the podcasts, or, or maybe on TV or on radio, are there teachers today that are not teaching sound doctrine? Absolutely. Should we tolerate them? The answer is what? No. No. It will corrupt the church. And these false teachers that are there, they were, they were not teaching sound doctrine. And he sends them back to deal with this, this Ephesian heresy that was being around. Paul spent three years pushing back on heresy, teaching truth within there. And it crept back in. In fact, he warned them. In Acts chapter 20, as he met with these Ephesian elders, he warned them, listen to the warning. He says this, Be on guard for yourselves and for all of the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the flock of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. We are, we are working towards elders and, and building up elders, and we need elders. In our bulletin is a whole list of, of qualifications. for We need elders. Why? Because in the flock of WCF, we need elders that will shepherd the flock to guard over them and, and to be careful in teaching well. Paul told the Ephesian elders, you've got to be careful about the wolves that come from without but you especially got to be careful about the wolves that rise up from within. And in my purview, every wolf needs to be shot, removed. A wolf does not serve a purpose hanging out with the flock of sheep. They have one job, to devour. But if your doctrine is not sound, you will not recognize a wolf that is coming in to devour the sheep. And so you have to be careful and be on guard. And so Paul sent Timothy back to Ephesus, well, leaving him there, went on to Macedonia to be able to continue working through. Why? Because through a vision in Acts chapter 16, he was called out to go to Macedonia to be able to be in this place within this. He sent out Timothy to be able to do this and to minister to some of the other churches while Timothy would do the work and continue to do the work. What? Equip the saints for the work of the ministry within that. To be able to teach the truth, to correct the elders, to be able to be in this place. And he was commissioned by God, Paul's delegate. And so, as Timothy was there, as we're going to see a little bit later, and he would say to Timothy, don't let them despise you because of your youth. Stand up. Speak the truth. 
establish what a true elder is going to be as we're going to cover next week in chapter 3. What are the qualifications to be an elder within this? But these false teachers that were there, as he says here, they were straying away from doctrine in verse 6. These things have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law or be all puffed up, even though they didn't understand what they were doing. They were looking for the names and the titles. They were occupied with myths and endless genealogies and all of these things. And they were wanting to be of the law and this legalism that was there. They were trying to, to work these things out. In fact, the false teachers were literally, as he quoted here, addicted to these endless myths and genealogies and, and such. Mythical construction of false doctrine. Would you recognize false doctrine? Have you heard it? If someone said to you, you could be a god and have your own planet, would you buy into that? Why? Because it's false. If someone was to preach to you and say, God is a God of love, and a God of love doesn't want anyone to perish, so even if you were to die without Christ and end up in hell, a God of love will allow you to become saved even though you're already in hell. Would you buy that? Yeah, but there was a pastor that wrote a book and hundreds of thousands of people bought the books called Love Wins. And they bought it. And it's heresy within that. So what Paul was dealing with was these Old Testament genealogies. Are there people today that say it's really important that you know what heritage and family you're from? What tribe are you from? Are you part of the 144,000 that are going to be selected? And all of these other things. That's another heresy. Cultic heresy. How do you know the difference between truth and heresy? One, you've got to know God's Word. Two, you've got to have somebody discipling you, training you, to be able to recognize these things, and somebody that is mature that you can bounce these things off of that can tell you truth or lie within this. Tracing your heritage and genealogies and such things is, is ridiculous for a Gentile because they're not Jews. But they were doing it. But the goal of instruction is to, is to turn people away from these endless genealogies and these false truths. But the endless genealogies and false truths were turning people away from God. They were rewriting the, the, the standard of God's Word and His holiness, and they were corrupting it. And it was urgent. One of the key elements that he talks about in this letter to Timothy, if you take a look at um, his, his message to them, is this. It's the message of love. Verse 5, But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and good conscience, to be able to be in that. The false teachers didn't love. The false teachers wanted the stage. They didn't really love the outcome of, of the person coming to know Christ. They really wanted the stage. They wanted the bigger, better stage, the bigger, better audience. Paul says to Timothy, confront these people. Confront them and remove them within this. Now, mind you, God is a God of love, and He's not wanting anyone to be lost. 
That's why Paul writes to Timothy and says, Timothy, you've got to confront this heresy because these people are being led astray and being, becoming lost, lost in their faith within this. And they're saying things that they don't know anything about. So question, how do you know what's right? You hear something on the radio, you hear something on podcasts, you hear something in the pulpit, you hear something that I say. How do you know what's right? What's the first thing you should do? Look it up in God's Word. Study to see if it's so. Acts 17.11 Pray. And then ask the person that said it, can you show me where that says? In context. Because you should never listen to somebody that cherry picks verses to be into this. And then check the heart of the messenger. Is the heart of the messenger teaching this truth out of love and concern for you? Or are they talking to hear themselves speak? That was the problem in Ephesus. They needed the sound doctrine. If you look at verses 8 through 11, it says this, But we know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, realizing that the fact that the law is not made for righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the holy, unholy and the profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, or for murderers, for immoral men, homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. One of the things that we understand is that the law is good. The law is really good because the law teaches the lawlessness, the lawless one, what they're doing is a violation of God's word. But when you take the law and you turn it into a club to beat the head of, of, of the righteous, now you've become a legalist. Part of the problem was the Judaizers were coming in and trying to force some of these Gentiles to become Jews by the law within this. And they were beating them up with it. And so the law can't be or should never be used as a whipping stick to beat people into submission, especially within the church. This, this idea of legalism that's there, and Paul clarifies what's going on. It should be used as a mirror. Is the law good? The answer is what? Yes. Is the law good for the believer? The answer should be and is what? Yes. Why? We are saved by grace through faith, not of works or anything that we do. But the law is good because it is a mirror to our behavior. We can look at ourselves in light of the law and it will reflect back to us where we're coming up short, what we, what we need to work on. Not that I need to fulfill the law, Jesus paid that price, but I need the law as a check. There is a pendulum swing that goes from the holiness movement to the grace movement. The holiness movement used to beat everybody up with the law. Then came the grace movement and everybody's saved by grace and it doesn't matter what you do. Are both extremes wrong? Yeah. So, so we need the law, but we also need grace. But we should never throw out the law and we should never completely throw out grace. Paul would say this in Romans 7, 7. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Megenoa, which literally means may it never be. On the contrary, 
I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, you shall not covet. You wouldn't know you're speeding on Highway 30 unless there was a sign that says 55. Now, I know you all obey that law, right? You all do. I know you do. Not. So when, you know, OSP or somebody pulls you over and you go, how fast were you going? You're going, uh, I was going with the flow of traffic. It was being safe. No. But within this, we've got to understand, we would not know that we were a sinner if the law had not revealed our sin and the need for a Savior. So the law is good. I would not know that I was backsliding unless I looked at the law and found out how far I'd slid back. I need the law. But then as a believer, I can go to God going, I really have messed up. God, will you forgive me and restore me? Paul gives a list of 14 different vices of men in this passage. You can read through it. Was it meant to be a comprehensive list? Is it 14 and that's it? No. These are all examples of vices and things that were going on in in Ephesus and even today. The problem is no one can fully obey the law because no one's perfect. So the law for the believer becomes that guideline. Don't beat yourself up over the law, but don't throw it out either. You need to have that healthy respect. Timothy needed to bring back a healthy respect for the balance of of grace and mercy and peace on one side that Paul uses and law on the other side so it's not abused. Within this. And he needs to bring this order back through healthy teaching. Within this. And so one of the things that was going on was a myth that was being being taught that that within this, that salvation was by grace, but you're maintaining your salvation through the law. That was an Ephesian heresy. In other words, you're saved by grace, but once you're saved, now you have to obey the law problem with that. In Galatians 3, 1 through 3, it says this, as Paul would address this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want you to find out. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you're now being perfected in the flesh or by the law? Do you see how that got out of balance? I'm saved by grace, but now the legalist says, now I have to maintain my salvation by works. Is that true? No, it's not. It's not true. You're saved by grace. You're kept by Christ. The payment for your sin is complete. But obeying the law is not keeping you saved. Jesus has kept you saved and keeps you saved. And so we've got to understand that that sound doctrine lines up with the gospel. Verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted within this. And so we understand this gospel message that, that keeps us in Paul says, I got it. I give it to you, Timothy. Verses 12 to 17, he goes on. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he has considered me to be faithful, putting me to re- in, into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor, and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. 
And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and the love which was found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. Yet, for this reason, I found mercy so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, and the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. So what does Paul do? Paul gives a gratitude for grace. What does he say? He says, let me give you an example. We all know about Paul, and Paul was a legalist, was he not? Pharisee among Pharisees. This guy obeyed the law to the, to the nth degree. Was he saved? No. But by grace and mercy, he was called out and he was saved. He was a murderer, persecuting Christians horribly. But he received the grace and Paul praised him. He says, thank you for this grace and this mercy that was given to me. And within this, Paul looks at, at all of the sinners and he says, I'm, I'm the worst. And then he says something profound. Why did God save me? The worst of the worst sinners. Why did God save me? So that I would be an example to others. Because if God could save me, a wretched person that I am, was. And if I was the worst of the worst sinners, and if God could save me, then anybody else can be saved. You ever wonder why God saved you? First and foremost, because He loves you. He's redeemed you. Why did God call me out of my old lifestyle and give me a new life? So that you could be an encouragement to other people. That they would say, hey, look it. If God could save Carrie, and as bad as he was, then there's hope for me. And Paul, Paul expresses that with gratitude that he could be an example in Acts 22, 4 and 5, he says this, I personally persecuted the way to death, binding and putting men and women in prisons, also having high priests and all the council of the elders can testify from them. I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were in Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. I was the worst. And now God saved me. There isn't a person in this room or watching online right now that is so horrible that God cannot redeem you. I was reading a testimony of a guy who was all tatted up and, and everything. He was kind of a mixed bag. He was an atheist Satanist. Persecuting, made it his role. And God grabbed a hold of him to save him. I had a student years ago Back in the 90s. And this was when um, skinheads was a real big deal in the L.A. area. And, and if, you, if you're old enough, you'll know who the skinheads are. And they were all involved. And he showed up at, at youth group one night and got saved. 
And he had he had his Doc Martens on, and he had his, his dark jeans, and he had his, you know, we called them wife beaters, t-shirts, and and all of that, and the suspenders, and and Nazi insignia, and just all of that. And he was in it, and he got saved because I preached this message that there isn't anybody so far gone that God can't save them. And he was there, and we discipled him, and I encouraged him and strengthened him. And he said, Kerry, I, I got a mission. I go, what? He goes, I want to evangelize skinheads. And I go, cool. And so he made it his mission to go wherever there were mosh pits and all the things that were going on. And I said, how are you going to do that? And he says, I'm going in the pit. He said, you're going to go in the He says, yeah. And he's a big guy. He says, I'm going in the pit. And when they want to stomp people's heads and be all violent, I'm going to get in there, and I'm going to, I'm going to love on the people in the pit. And when they ask me, why were you so kind in the middle of this, then I'm going to share Jesus with them. And he did that for a number of years, and, and just a great guy, being able to love the Lord. Why? Because he was saved from, some, from being destitute to be able to do that. Why? Because of the faith, hope, and love that were there, these virtues that were there. Paul realized he was a sinner saved from the wrath of God to receive the grace of God. Do you guys realize, realize that? You are a sinner that was saved from the wrath of God to receive the grace of God. That's the message that you need to share with people. That's the message of hope. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul's mission was a mission of grace within this. To be able to be in that place. To, to give mercy because he found mercy. To give Jesus because Jesus found him. And, and within this, he saw that as his mission and his ministry to show mercy. 2 Corinthians 4.1 says this, Therefore, since we have this ministry, note, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. You have the, been given the mercy of God. Don't lose heart within this ministry of ministering to others and giving them mercy. Paul's salvation was a message of joy. And what Paul does is really cool. Paul, when he writes, he just kind of breaks off into things. He breaks off into a doxology, a worship of God. If you look at, at this verse, he says in verse 17, he was so excited about being saved by mercy and grace, he just broke out in song. He says, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. He just praises God right in the middle of this thing. You ever been in that place where you really got to the place where you realized what I was saved from, what I'm saved to, and you just say, thank you, God. That's a good place to meditate, to get to. He goes on in verses 18 to 20 at the end, at the end of this section to encourage Timothy now. He was so excited. Now I've got to encourage Timothy. He says, this command I trust to you, Timothy. My son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made according to you, that by them you fight the good fight, keep, keeping the faith and good conscience, which some have shipwrecked or wrecked and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these, Hymenius and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So in this next section, before he moves on to dealing with some of the church issues, still part of his introduction... He goes to Timothy, he says, fight the good fight of faith. Don't quit. I've shared with you before, I'll share with you again. And I just said it to my grandson the other day. Winners never quit. Quitters never win. 
fight the good fight of faith. We are in a battle. And this command was referring to dealing with some of these false teachers. Hymenius and Alexander. You know it had to be bad for their names to be written in the Bible for all eternity. What was going on? They were the same guys that were in verse 3 that he refers to. So that you may teach and instruct certain men. Who are these certain men? It's these two knuckleheads. You've got to teach these guys to be able to do this. What have they done? They've shipwrecked their faith. Does it mean that they weren't saved? Paul doesn't go there. But what Paul does say is they ran their faith on the rocks. Why? Because they've bought into this false doctrine that is there. They've abandoned their faith. And they've gone another way. They've made shipwreck of their faith. And they're teaching others to do the same thing. The problem is, people wander away from the truth and they will shipwreck their faith. When you wander away from the truth of God, you run yourself on the rocks and you end up in moral failure. You end up in moral failure. When you wander away and get off course, you end up in a place that you never should be and your faith is shipwrecked and you're on the rocks. And so within this, this Hymenius and Alexander, Hymenius, we know, was a believer who turned away from the faith and actually opposed Paul. How do we know this? In 2 Timothy 2, 17-18, he says this, And their talk was spread like gangrene among them, are Hymenius and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that, note, this is their message, the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. What were they doing? They were going around saying the resurrection already come. The rapture had already taken. The second coming had already come. You're, you're, you're done. You might as well just quit. Already happened within that. There is a false teaching. It's called amillennialism. And it's this teaching that there really is no, no second coming, that we're in the millennial reign now. But it's all spiritualized. False teaching. You don't find it. But it shipwrecks faith. Why? Because throughout the New Testament, we are told time and time again, prepare for the second coming of Christ. Prepare. Look up. Your redemption draws nigh. And so what happened is they, they've spiritualized this. Hymenius and Alexander, they're, they're, they're running amok and, and teaching false doctrine. We're not sure about Alexander. He's just named with Hymenius. And what does he say? He says specifically to these guys... I've handed over to Satan so that, there's that henna clause, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. You say, well, what does that mean? Hand them over to Satan. When you read Matthew 18 and you take a look at church discipline, what's the last step of church discipline? To turn the, the, the sinning brother that's refusing to repent out into the world. To mark, and, mark them out and treat them as one who is not saved. Why? So that they will miss fellowship and that they will repent of their sin and return back. Alexander and Hymenius and every believer is covered in the body of Christ in fellowship and encouragement and strength and, and all of these things. But if you have somebody that's rebellious, that's teaching false doctrine, and you've gone to them time and time again and they don't listen, don't treat them as a brother. Treat them as an unbeliever. And don't allow them to, to have the same shelter and the same benefits 
of those that are in the fellowship of God, that gives them a false sense of security within that. They're to confront them. Matthew 18, 15 to 20 says this, and this is the process. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Step one, what do you do? Go to him in private. Hopefully to regain the fellowship. If he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Why? So you'll restore him. But if he refuses to listen to you, tell it to the church. Why? So you can gossip about him? No. So the church can pray. And if he refuses even to listen to the church that's praying for him, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, don't recognize him under that protection. Truly I say to you, note, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you that if two or three or two of you agree about anything, they may ask and it shall be done for them by my father who is in heaven for where two or three have gathered together in my name. I am here in their midst. That verse is probably one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. It is not about two or three Christians to getting together to pray and that Jesus is in their midst. Jesus is in your midst all the time. It's in context of church discipline. It's in context of, of allowing this church discipline that says, if two or three are gathered, why? Because this brother has gone through this discipline, and whatever the church governess determines because they've sought restoration, God agrees with them in heaven if they do it this way. Why? So that the brother will be restored. So when Paul says turning Alexander and Hymenius out... He's practicing this Matthew 18. Turn them out so that they'll learn. So Satan, Satan will work them over and they'll want to get back under the covering of the church and the benefit of the church within this. Our problem is, is in the modern churches, if somebody gets offended and you try church discipline here, what do they do? They go to church down the street. They don't tell anybody. And then it starts all over again there. And then they go to the other church down the street. And then guess what? It starts all over there. And, and it's difficult. Chapter 2. Chapter 2, Paul now deals with Timothy on some of the things that were going on in the church that were there, some of the order. And he wants to bring some order to the church. It, it, it's not super long. It's pretty easy within this. And chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, he says, First of all, so now we're getting into the business. Timothy, this is what I need you to do. I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved, to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God, one mediator, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all and the testimony given in the proper time. For this I was appointed preacher and an apostle, and I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So what is the first thing he does? Well, he calls the church for proper prayer and worship. Is it a dangerous thing when, when people of faith within the church become over-politicized? Yes. Why? Because we bring our flesh 
and we bring our own political ideologies within the context of the church, which can create wrath and dissension and divisions within this. If I was to ask the people in this room, are you a Democrat or are you a Republican? Who are you voting for and all of these things? And how do you feel on this stance and how do you feel on that stance? I can get a billion answers and we could probably get into a big fight. Paul's saying, leave your politics at the door. What is the church meant to do? To pray. Who should we pray for? All men and all leaders. Does that mean that I have to pray for a a, a political leader that I don't like? The answer is what? Yes. Yes. Does that mean that I have to refrain from talking bad about that political leader that I don't like? The answer is what? Oh, that wasn't as bold. The answer is absolutely yes. Do we do that? No. (laughs) We don't. Paul was in a highly, or Timothy was in a highly political environment. Rome had a stronghold. Nero was not a good guy. Roman Empire was treating Christians poorly and persecuting them. And they were getting killed, and they didn't like it. So was there a tendency when the church gets together to talk about how badly they're treated, being treated by the government? The answer is absolutely yes. Paul was trying to square them up because they were talking more about politics than talking about the need for these politicians to be saved. Now you're going, carry your meddling. I'm teaching. Because that's what God says in here. It is God's will for that those who are in authority to be saved. Note in verse 2, all kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and, note, dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires how many men? All men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth within this. Romans chapter 13, 1. All authority comes from God. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and from those who are established by God. Is God sovereign? The answer is what? Yes. So whoever's in office is there because God has them there for a reason. Now, I may not understand God's reasons, and I may not always like God's reasons. But that's why he's God and I'm not. So we need to pray for our leaders, especially when our leaders make life difficult within this. Nero, the emperor of Rome, was was emperor from A.D. 54 to 68, and he made sport of persecuting Christians within this. Yet... Paul tells Timothy to teach the church to pray for their leaders. And we think about this. Any theology that limits the scope of prayer is not a correct theology. Any theology that limits the scope of prayer is not a correct theology. We need to pray. We need to pray for our leaders. What does Paul say to pray for? One, for their salvation. Two, for our witness and testimony. Because if you're a Christian that's bad-mouthing the government, what does that say to the non-believer? What does that declare to them? 
Paul says we pray this way and we should do this way. Why? So we can live in peace and quietness or, or with a good witness. He says to make it our ambition to lead a quiet life and basically attend to our own business. He says that in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. He says this. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Attend to your own business. Work with your, your hands just as we command you so that we, you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. Not be in any need. Does that, does that mean that, that I shouldn't have an opinion? Oh, no, you should. But your desire for the person to be saved should override any perceived injustices that you have. And, and have that good witness that is going on. Because it's God's will that they would be saved. God wants everybody to be saved. Will everybody be saved? The answer is what? No. But we've got to understand it's God's will. And 2 Peter 3.9 says, Your actions speak so loud. I, or I'm sorry, that was my quote. <laughs> he says, The Lord is not slow about His promises. Some count slowness. But patient towards you, not wishing for anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. It's God's desire that all would come to repentance. How many people did Jesus die for? All. So does that mean Jesus died also for the salvation of politicians? Yes. Should you pray for them? Yes. And you pray for their salvation. You pray that they would know the grace of God. Why? So that the political environment will change? No. So that they don't spend eternity in hell. That's why you're praying for them. You're not praying for a Christian president so life becomes easier for you. That's the wrong praying. You're praying that the president becomes a Christian so he doesn't spend eternity in hell. This world's going away. It's not going to get any easier. Satan is the prince of the power of this world. He's going to be destroyed. But we need to focus on God's grace. And as Paul said, I was the worst of yet sinners and God saved me. We need to think about that in our lives. And, and myself included, I had to preach this sermon to me before I preached it to you guys. So if I got hammered on it, welcome to the club. We need to focus on this. There is one mediator, as he says, between man and, and, Christ and God, and that's Jesus. Jesus is standing in the gap. Now, we understand also that God offers us salvation. And it's a ransom for all. And in the proper time, is there, Paul says, this is my mission. It was not Paul's job to overthrow the Roman government. It was Paul's job to preach Jesus. It's not our job to overthrow the government of the United States. It's our job to preach Jesus. And how do we do? We pray. So now he attacks the issue that was going on. In the congregation, they weren't praying that way. How do we know that? Because in verse 8, he says this, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. In other words, when you pray, you need to come to God with a pure heart without wrath and dissension. Men, don't get together at the city gate or whatever and talk about your politics and then have your, your, your prayers with a heart of, of wrath or a bias or a judgment or prejudice against people. Pray without wrath and dissension. What are you praying? For the salvation of the leaders. 
But apparently they weren't doing that. Apparently when they were gathering together, their prayers were much more political than spiritual. And it was a distraction. What was the other distraction? The other distraction was going on and disruption was going on was dealing with the women. But again, before we move on, what is this prayer with holy hands? Lifting up these hands. It's the posture of prayer. Near Eastern culture, when they pray, they would stand and they would raise their hands within this. But many people pray to be seen. You can read about it in Luke chapter 18 in the account of the Pharisee and the publican where the Pharisee was standing in the street. Remember, he was saying, hey, look at me. I was this guy. I thank you. I'm not like this guy over here. And this man went to his house rather not justified. The publican was justified. What was another issue? Distraction during worship. Now, he addressed the men on their prayer deal, but what about the women? The difficulty that was going on, and we'll read 9 through 11, it says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modesty, discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather a means of good works and proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow women to teach Uh, or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman was being deceived, fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctify uh, with self-restraint. So what does he say? Well, you got to picture this in your mind. So they get in for these, these gatherings, and the men are praying these like, Dumb, angry, political prayers. But the other distraction that was going on was the women. Now, these women were getting saved out of Greco-Roman culture, where it was about the show. But they were coming into the fellowship, and now they were still about the show. They were saved on the inside, but the appearance on the outside was a distraction within that. And Paul was telling the women that you need to tone down the, the, the apparel, the, the dress. Dress appropriately and don't be distracting during worship. Why? Because what they would do, and in fact in culture, they would also plate their hair really high and do all of this stuff. And it was a distraction. Some people pray to hear themselves talk. That's a distraction. Some people are more intent on what they look like than on the outside than what the inside looks like. That's a distraction. To be able to be in that place. One of the things that's in this that is true also that was going on in this egalitarian culture was that women wanted to elevate themselves to be equal to men. And you don't find an egalitarian or a position in the Bible. You, you see what's called a complementarian. Where women are to complement the work of the men. Why? Because that's the authority structure that God established within this. And we see how Adam was created first and then Eve. Now, Eve overrode Adam and and brought sin into the world. And so their structure was was put back into place. Does that make a woman any less special than a man? The answer is absolutely not within this. But there is an order and a structure that's within this. And she's to be in that what's called hupotasso, that subordinate position that's in there. 
and they're allowed their 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 attitude to be a good testimony to those that are outside of the church. Now he does bring this this issue up of Adam and Eve that is within this within that subordinate structure that God established within this. But then you come to verse 15. Verse 15 is a very interesting passage, and we'll close with that, and then we'll, we're going to have communion. But don't get all spun up around verse 15. Verse 15 is a very hard passage. He says this, But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if, and that's a conditional clause, they continue in faith and love and sanctify with self-restraint. I studied that, I prayed over that, and I can tell you this. I have no idea what that means. Just to be honest. We don't find it measured out. I can give you a lot of guesses. I can tell you what reasonably I believe it to mean. But this is one of those interpretations that I'll hold with an open hand. Because I'm not convinced one way or the other. This, this statement that these women will be preserved, literally that word preserved means saved, that, the, that she'll be saved through childbearing, could mean a couple of different things. Paul could have implied that the woman is honored or saved, because remember she's hupotasso, so she's subordinate. But she is saved and honored because she's going to be the one, the gender that gives birth to Jesus. And that salvation is going to come through the woman. That Jesus was born of a woman. And so having told her that you, that you need to be in this subordinate position, he encourages and says that there is salvation that's actually coming through your gender within this. Plausible. And it's through you, this woman, that, that your child, Jesus, will defeat the devil. It could also mean that Paul would say that she would be saved through the fact that her son, that it's Jesus, would then defeat evil and bring salvation because the key word, in the faith, in the faith, is in there. Again, plausible. Um, another could mean that within this, that the woman, if she holds this position of being a mom, taking care of the kids, and running the household, she'll be saved from the evil of this world because she's taking care of the household and she's not going out and becoming a busybody, getting infected by all the context of the things of the world, but staying within that place. We know this uh, could be plausible because of 1 Timothy 5.13. Says at the same time they also learn to be idle, talking about young widows. At the same time, learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but they also gossips and busybodies, uh, talking about things that are not proper to mention. And so within this, if a woman understands that she has a significant role as a mother caretaker within that within the household, and again near Eastern culture, in a complementarian position then she'll be saved from all the temptations and the things that are in the world. Again, plausible. Which one do I land on? Nothing specific. Just hold it open. But we've got to understand in church order that there is a place, that the elders have a place, teach the Word, that the men have the place, be prayer warriors, 
that the women have a place to complement the work within and raise up the next generation. And, and to bring the body together. And avoid this false doctrine that wants to, wants to infect the church. Paul's going to unpack a lot more. Next week, we're going to be in chapter 3. You don't want to miss it. We're only going to do one chapter. We're going to walk through what the qualifications of an elder are and spiritual leadership. And you're going to, you're going to definitely want to be here for that. Let's go ahead and pray as the, we prepare for communion. The worship team comes up. God, I thank you. I thank you for your word. And I thank you for the power of your word. And, and God, there is so much here. We could spend the next three weeks just unpacking these, these passages. Lord, what you've called us to is to be able to, to live at peace. To be at that place where our witness and our testimony to the world is significant. But for that witness and testimony to be significant and pure, God, we've got to have our hearts checked first. Holy Spirit, I invite you now to examine our hearts. See if there's any wicked way in us that we might confess it and be right with you as we prepare our hearts for this time of communion. The night before Jesus died, He gathered the disciples together and He gave them this bread. He says, this bread represents my body broken for you. As often as you do this, as often as you take it, remember me. And then He blessed the cup and He said, drink all of it. This cup represents my blood. It's a new covenant. The church was birthed through the blood of Christ. We live because He died and rose again. What kind of sinner were you? What have you been saved from? Celebrate that with this communion. Knowing that God has saved you to eternal life. And may that be the hope that Christ in you is that, that hope of glory. In a moment, the team's going to lead us in, in worship. When you're ready, come up and you can serve yourself. Take a piece of the cracker and the grape juice. And then, when everybody's been served, then we'll pray and we'll receive it together. God, I thank you for this time. We worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen.
thank you for this bread. It reminds us of the fact that this body is not going to inherit eternal life. That, Lord Jesus, you died and, and were, you were buried and you rose again three days later in a new body. We look forward to that, that time when we shed this old and received the new. And that was only made possible because you paid for all of our sins. We will not experience torment when we leave this earth. We'll experience glory because of what you've done. We thank you for this bread and all that it means. It means that we are forgiven, that we will be made whole. Lord Jesus, we remember you even now. And we say thank you in Jesus' name. Let's all take the bread together. If I was to ask you, could you remember your sin, you would probably say yes. If I was to ask Jesus, he would say no. He has chosen to forget those sins against you because he shed his blood to forgive the sins that were against you. This cup reminds us of that forgiveness. This cup reminds us of love. You stand before a holy God clean because of what was done. God, we thank you for this cup and all that it means. 
we will spend eternity just scraping the surface of, of, of understanding what forgiveness is. We will be so overwhelmed by your presence, we will just sing glory and praise to you. And thank you. But it didn't come easy. You poured out your blood so that we might live. And it is with a grateful heart we say thank you. We receive this cup in honor of you in Jesus' name. Let's all receive the cup together. Thank you, Lord.
rest of your week. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.